Welcome back once again, the Kyle Style Podcast, doing the uh, slicing and dicing and parsing of madness of uh, Sam Harris and uh, Omer Aziz's interview slash shit show. Uh, I was hoping to get this into three parts, and may end up going into four, but we'll see. Uh, kicking off here, part three, we're gonna, this one kind of deals a little bit more with actual reform tactics and strategies, and uh, I think <laughs> kind of goes to some frustrating places for uh, all parties involved, but uh, we're gonna try to have a little fun with it after the fact. So, let's dive right into part three. And I don't deny that that there needs to be a liberal and constitutional revolution in the Middle East and South Asia. In fact, all right, well, that's at least kind of a starting point. He's at least acknowledged that there may, in fact, be a problem. Uh, It seems to be a problem for some people to even admit that there is any kind of doctrinal or specific issues with Islamic practice or Islamic beliefs. This is the – I want to bring this back to the broader point that I'm making, is that your strategy – and Ayan's strategy of telling Muslims we have to excise verses, let's just say even if it's the most intellectually honest position that you that anyone could have, let's assume that. Strategically and politically, it's never going to happen because people believe in the Quran and their, their tradition and they're not going to take a razor to their holy books. What I want to see happen is a liberal and democratic and constitutional revolution that happens across the Middle East and South Asia where we support the left the progressive opposition that exists in every country, the democratic opposition that exists in every country. But because of U.S. foreign policy and because of domestic tyrants and because of religious tyrants, the religious right, that hasn't been allowed to emerge. And when that opposition comes in, it's going to, the cultural change they'll implement will be permanent. And so though, that is basically my view. All right. And that uh, strategy, by the way, is essentially what Majid Nawaz and even Sam Harris and others have been pursuing um it's it's one strategy would be to uh purge the holy books of the really problematic and troublesome verses another strategy would be to by some measure uh kind of do what we've been able to do in america at least uh with a secular constitution uh a separation of church and state to remove governmental power and influence from the religious practices and vice versa um that that is a matter of constitutionality which people, the citizens of various countries, have to believe in. They have to believe in the Constitution. They have to believe that a man-made Constitution has more weight and authority and importance than the religious ones. And if the religious doctrines have teachings about what the political system is supposed to look like, well, then which one do you think wins? To the truly faithful, one side wins. Uh, A secular man-made government loses if you believe in religious and spiritual... uh, uh, guidelines for governance, such as the divine right of kings, for example. Uh, if if you believe that God instituted monarchy and has selected the king to be the ruler, well, then why would you follow a you know a man-made democratic you know constitution or uh, or governance? You would believe that God chose the king to rule you. This is all problematic. We've moved past this since I guess Runnymede. I'm going to throw that one out there, I guess, Runnymede, uh, that we've began moving away from these principles. Uh, but here we are in 2016, and this time it's Islam that wants to institute political uh, political power backed by spiritual practice. 
<sighs> All right, let's keep going. On this. How do you engender those liberal attitudes yeah. when a majority of people believe, as is written in the books, whether you're talking about the Quran or you're talking about the Hadith or you're talking about the biography of Muhammad, they believe things like women are essentially the property of the men in their lives or at the very least second-class citizens or they believe things like apostates should be put to death or they believe things like infidels and polytheists are forever your enemy, right? You, you have attitudes that can be lifted directly out of the text based on not only a plausible reading, I would say on certain of these points, the most plausible reading, even on certain of these points, the only plausible reading. And you're saying that these texts are forever to be held sacred. One can never disavow any line in them. Yeah. I mean, like, look, they're not – here's the thing. If you were to present this to a actual believing you know, liberal Muslim who believed every word of it, what they would basically do – it doesn't matter what – and I've, I've engaged in this exercise many times and at, probably ended up as frustrated as you have. What they would basically do is that, A, they would contextualize it to the point and then they would contextualize it first and then they would neutralize the view. That sounds like a complex way of saying rationalize. They rationalize the belief as it's written, as with how they actually intend to live. Uh, I don't know if they can do too much rationalization with books that are, you know, a thousand years old and claim to be the voice of God written down. I mean, rationalize away. Right? So they would say, for example, that apostasy, leaving Islam in the ninth century when the Quran was revealed, would amount to high treason because the Islamic community was very small. Now, that doesn't amount to high treason anymore, so Muslims should be free to leave and, to, of course, to, to enter the faith. Okay, wait, wait a second. Okay, that's fascinating. Um, <laughs> okay, so if you were there in the early days of, of Islam, right, back when Muhammad was still kicking... Uh, if you left Islam, if you apostatized, that was treasonous because there were so few, meaning that if you left, that was maybe reducing their numbers, so that would have threatened the future of it, so that would have been considered treason. Okay, now that it's, there's billions of Muslims, uh, now it's not treasonous because of a numbers game? I mean, come on. Like, I mean, like, I get exactly, I think I get what he's saying, but this is really what people believe, or at least this is his proposed uh, reform of the concept, or this is what a rationalization people go through, uh, Muslims go through. They say, oh, it's not the same now. <sighs> okay, if they were all saying, well, it's not the same now, then we probably wouldn't be having this jihad problem, and we wouldn't be having people who believe they're going to go into, you know, they're going to get a martyr's death. Like, we can't, again, rationalize away. But there's also another aspect here, which is that, of course, if you were to uh, admit that the texts maybe aren't relevant to the modern world any longer, well, then, I mean, maybe they weren't written by God, right? I mean, if they're, if they're going to be perfect and they're going to be sort of immutable through time and they're always going to be relevant— well, then you have to, you in your own mind at least, scrub the parts that don't make any sense anymore, right? Uh, it, it doesn't, so like, it's like fascinatingly frustrating. If you're 
if you're talking about these texts as being that important and actually being handed down by God, well, then you can't actually change anything because it was the actual word of God. Why would you change anything? But that's not what we're not really talking about. We're talking about people playing their own mind games and doing mental gymnastics with books that are heavily outdated. Our societies are different now. The world is different now. You could maybe say human nature is the same, and so maybe these texts have some kind of relation to that, but wow, like people actually taking this endeavor seriously of uh, determining, you know, God's rules and God's intentions and all this other stuff is just amazing. It's just, it's just crazy. This is actually going on in the world. This is what people are spending their time doing. Like, I mean, not me, and probably not you, the humble listener, but just seriously, what the fuck are we doing? I think the second thing that that they would do is to highlight the importance of interpretation. The fact that 86% of Egyptians are not going out and killing apostates who are in many cases their friends signifies to me that mentally they've already excised those verses. Um, good, I guess. I mean, sure, like uh, they have adopted a preference for social cohesion, uh, cooperation, and uh, and tranquility at a social level in favor of violent religious nonsense. I mean, yeah, again, rationalize away, guys. Good. Uh, you've reached a new epiphany, a new pinnacle of living without practicing barbaric nonsense. They've already neutralized those verses. They're focusing on the part of the Quran, the tradition, broadly speaking, the Rumi and the poetry and the music and the spirituality, which I know that you are a fan of, at least in some context, they're focusing on those elements of the religion. Okay. And I think we should be mindful of that. So for, and, and look, the polls are contradictory as well. Like across the board, you see you know, 97% of South Asians and 85% of Middle Easter, Easterners say religious freedom is a good thing. That kind of completely depends on what the definition of religious freedom is. In some sense, they could just mean they don't want the government involved if they happen to live under a secular government. Um, or they want the government to endorse and support them, that would be religious freedom. Uh, it's hard to know what they mean. You'd have to actually see that study. Uh, maybe I'll try to find it. Throw some links in. A higher number of Palestinians that, believe in evolution yeah, yeah, than, yeah. than, than okay. evangelical Protestants do. So let's St- no, stop with that first poll result. That's not actually the paradox you make it out to be. People can answer that question saying that religious freedom is a good thing Purely as it applies to me, I want to be free to practice my Salafi Islam, right? Religious freedom is a good thing, okay? Should apostates be killed? Oh, of course. Uh, We have to kill them, right? There is no paradox there if you understand religious freedom to be your own religious freedom. So let's break this down logically. So like these Salafis, who I hope you appreciate are not the majority of in these countries. So these Salafis believe that the Quran is the literal interpretation of God. Their reading of the Quran is the most plausible. They think that if you do not, if they do not implement God's will, that they will be sinners. So why don't they go and do it? Well, is it it fear of secular law? Just to back up, let me concede a point you made, which I have made many times before. Perhaps this would surprise you, but Ah, we have agreement. There is some distance between what people profess they believe and what they actually believe or what the, or, or, or in people believe, hold these beliefs to greater or, or lesser extents. And, you know, they're the things they think are probably true. And then they th- then they're the things they will bet their life on, the things that, that are just absolutely uh, going to rule their behavior and emotion whenever that belief becomes relevant. 
or that which they'll admit to or publicly profess to, given that there may be immense social pressure, like life-threatening social pressure, to go along and state that which other people are also stating they believe. Uh, a little bit of uh, conformity and uh, social pressure, which maybe, you know, threatens your life or something, you know. So to have, you know, 86% of Egyptians say that apostates should be killed, that doesn't tell you that 86% of Egyptians would kill Ayan with their own hands, right? But Nor would they vote for oh, someone who had okay. that as their platform. Okay, so yes. Which, so is, which is the important part. But what percentage would? What percentage would vote well, for that I don't know. In the, Egyptian election, in the Egyptian elections, 48%, 49% voted for voted for the liberal. And the party, Mohamed Morsi's party, the Freedom and Justice Party, had 50 years of political organization and development. And they, they still could only muster 53%. Well, well, maybe there's uh, Omer's uh, rationalization and contextualization there again. Maybe people kind of make a, a totally real-world, uh, real-time kind of decision and say, you know what, we know what party is best for us, not the party of the religious maniacs. And again, that's a good thing. They should be citing on, you know, fiscal policies and other various other policies, not just how devoutly Muslim they are. That's that's a good thing. I'm agreeing with you that these numbers come down when you actually ask people to take concrete steps. Yes, yeah, so, so the numbers are bullshit, Sam. Every one of these numbers matters. It's just because the, the people who will say apostates should be killed are on the wrong side of this free speech issue. They're doing nothing good for free speech, and what they're doing is quite harmful. And many of these people, maybe not 86% in the case of Egypt, but some intolerable percentage would vote the wrong way and would acquiesce, would, would just stand by and watch a mob kill a so-called apostate. Is everyone in the mob who isn't helping someone who's about to be lynched is everyone in the mob culpable, equally culpable? Well, no, not equally. They're the people who are actually doing the lynching. Then they're the people who are just standing there with their cell phones, right? But all of these people are part of a problem, okay? As with the brutally real-world example of the killing of Farkunda uh, from the previous episode, got the video linked on the uh, blog post there from episode two, uh, bystanders not helping and cheering on and jumping in from time to time and holding up cell phones and recording it. Um, yes, they are also somewhat culpable and part of the, uh, the euphoria of this mob and the crowd. They're part culpable. And yes, there, there are gradations of belief. There's gradations of support for terrorism. There's gradations of commitment to jihad. This was the concentric circle image that I talk about in the book and that I tried to talk about on Bill Maher's show. There are the people at the absolute center of the bullseye who, yes, they are, they are strapping on the C4 now because they're going to do an operation today. Let's say a Sunni who wants to blow up a Shia mosque, right? That is a the full commitment. And, right? and where's the theological, uh, where's the theological prerequisite or injunction for that? The whole phenomenon of takfirism and the whole phenomenon of, of, of judging other people to be apostates. So the definition of takfir or takfiri, uh, according to Wikipedia anyway, is when a Sunni Muslim accuses another Muslim uh, of apostasy. So the accusation itself is called takfir. It is derived from the word kafir, or I've heard it as kufar, which means an unbeliever. And when uh, someone who is or claims to be a Muslim is declared impure. Okay, so 
So you can basically do a, uh, a no true Scotsman amongst yourselves, um, only the penalty isn't just um, maybe being uh, outcast or anything like that. You can be killed for being an apostate. Um, there are other, you know, maybe social consequences, but you can basically do a witch hunt or some of some kind. You can kind of just point and say, uh, you're impure and you're not a real Muslim and you're, uh, you know, you're a takfir. And it's... It's the the sharks eating each other, basically, or in, or infidels, or, or right, polytheists. Right. Whether or not they fourteen hundred years was not practiced, and when it was practiced, it was by a very highly institutionalized and legalized profession of, of scholars. The, the independent takfiri fatwas only begin in the eighteenth century and are perfected by bin Laden. Again, specific well, political well, ideologies, specific well, political well, we can, circumstances, and specific political it, we, actors. We can get it. We can get into history. If we ever get there, but the the issue is is that today, every one of these degrees of commitment to attitudes and behaviors that are totally hostile to everything we care about in in an open civil society. Just as a brief aside, I want to say this because I'm kind of a fan of Sam Harris and his some of his debates and polemics and everything, and his podcast is fantastic, the Waking Up podcast. But there's something that's happened here where he's been painted as this uh, warmonger and this uh, he wants to nuclear bomb you know the Middle East and I, I don't understand when when I listen to him I don't hear anything that indicates that that's any part of his worldview specifically like he talks about the benefits of civilization and what will uh, support civilization moving forward into the future and what kind of world we're creating for ourselves and what aspects of our world are you know sort of making up the gestalt and i don't understand how people like omer and other people other critics are, are able to just railroad into all of this negativity um and all of the they read in all of this really awful stuff about this guy who when i hear him speak and every person he speaks to he seems genuine. He seems like he genuinely is uh, is aware of things, and he's trying to share knowledge. And uh, I think that this this little part right here is a good example of where he's coming from with his you know concerns about Islam, as you know I am as well. There are degrees of commitment to those noxious and divisive and dangerous beliefs and behaviors that one can draw directly out of Scripture. And yes, undoubtedly, there are Muslims who want to live in open, creative, peaceful societies who do their best to ignore the least convenient passages in Scripture, just as Jews do, just as Christians do. And I have always acknowledged the, the presence of these people. And in fact, the extreme version is I hear from the, the, the ex-Muslims or the Muslim freethinkers or the, the Muslim atheists who are in hiding, trying to figure out how to better their lives and their societies in a context where to speak too plainly about the problem of Scripture or the problem of believing that the Quran is the, the eternal and perfect word of God is to apply, if not a death sentence to yourself, just a life-deranging contest against the religious maniacs in your society. Yeah. I think this is – it's important to kind of put this in context, right? Um, you know, here in the West, we kind of have this like 
uh, we have this sort of open atheist movement, and you can belong to different religions. And you know, in America, especially here, we are. There's all kinds of different religions. If you believe in a religion, you can start up your own church, and you might have friction from other people, maybe. But uh, you know, you can just start up a different religion. You can be an atheist. You can be a non-believer. It doesn't really matter, um, and you're, you're legally protected in in certain sense, right? So, so I feel like we need to. Uh, keep this in perspective that there are people who live under these uh, religious authoritarians and they can't be open about their actual thoughts. If they have any doubts about Islam or Muhammad, they can't, or the Quran, they can't express those doubts, right? Uh, because then it's possibly the penalty would be that they would be seen as an apostate or a blasphemer and they would get stoned to death or, or you know, get killed like a Farkunda, for example. And I, th- I think we, we have taken this for granted in the West that we have these freedoms to just openly speak about various aspects of religion. And I, again, I, I want to side a little bit with Omer and say that, yeah, probably it's not as severe as what happened in Afghanistan with Farkunda uh, in the rest of the Middle East. But uh, we we need to be wary of it and, you know, be mindful of our own attitudes in the Western world so that we don't, you know, we don't descend back into that kind of madness, right? Uh, we, we need to be better than that, and they need to be better than that. I think you denigrate those people, though, when you say they don't take their religion seriously. They take the jihad verses seriously, but they contextualize them within this, the history of Islam, and they don't think that any two-cent preacher with an ugly beard on their face can just de- denounce another Muslim as takfir or can blow up a suicide vest in, when, when children are around. Well, I guess we're all happy that they've drawn the line somewhere. I mean, you you got to draw the line somewhere and you stop at, you know, suicide bombing, uh, you know, children. Well, that's great, you know. Uh, let's push that back a little further and, you know, not be crazy. Plus, he talks about uh, people, you know, not following just some, you know, imam who claims to be a preacher with a beard on his face. Well, yeah, if there, if it was just a David Koresh type level, uh, you know, maybe 100 followers or something like that, we wouldn't be having these problems, um, the societal level problems. And it seems obvious that there are mainstream teachings you don't get the entire nation of saudi arabia doing things like you know practicing the hijab and and the kaab and all that stuff with it just being some side thing it's it's very prevalent it's very common there are very powerful imams and and you know teachers who are expressing these views it's not just isis that are the crazy ones isis are just the ones who are committing violence in the name of it there's all kinds of other extremists who you know are mainstream the, the 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 hardcore Salafis and Wahhabis and ISIS folks, they need to be opposed. You can use the Quranic tradition, the Quran the Quran itself, the Islamic tradition and Islamic precedent to oppose them. And there are reformers in these communities who have been doing that because they're and the primary victims and, of them, right? So it's not what, just like, oh, there are these jihad verses over here and this licenses you know extreme killing of civilians at any time or terrorism at all times. And again, I mean, statistically, this this is fairly obvious, right? I mean, if if all 
you know, all Muslim practitioners were were like Klingons, and they were just ready to go to war at any time and, you know, make suicide bombs and everything, the world would be a much more insane place, right? There would be waves of waves of destruction just sweeping the earth. So that's not happening. So, like Sam Harris says, the rest of them are not taking their faith seriously, or maybe not as seriously, as actionably, as the ISIS members are, or as, you know, the uh, Boston... Uh, marathon bombers did they you know they practice they they have tea and they you know read the quran and they live their life because they want to stay alive they're not you know wedded to this you know destructive psychopathic you know nonsense you shouldn't even have to say that we shouldn't have to split these hairs but you know omer seems to say that as though that's like some kind of big revelation well yeah obviously and you know there were there are christian terrorists as well uh, but they're very minor as well, but they are still a problem. I mean, oh, Bernard Lewis, for example, who I think we would agree is a great historian, he said himself in, in his books on Islam that there's nothing in the Islamic text or Islamic history that would justify the kind of suicidal terrorism that we've seen you know, in modern times. Well, that's very interesting. And as much as that might be true, it's also completely irrelevant what Bernard Lewis thought. Or what any you know liberal Western Muslim like or ex-Muslim like Omer thinks, they think it. Okay, ISIS has been very very clear about what it is that they want, and that is directly related to their faith in Islam and their following of the Quran. They're not making that up. Like, oh my God. The people who are opposing, who are the most opposed on the front lines against the jihadists and the violent Salafis are the people who are using the text and the traditions and the laws and the precedent to oppose them to their face. Okay, well, the people it, who can be convinced anyways. It's interesting that you bring up Lewis because he's often disparaged as a, as a neocon shill by Islamists and, and Muslim I think he's a very good historian. I think okay. he's a very good historian. So, but, okay, but so, so many of your, your fellow Muslims, I would say most, hate the guy, right? Much of well, my many on the left in general okay. dislike yeah, him but, as an Orientalist. But, so, so much of my view about Islam and the and the relevant history here has been informed by Lewis. But to, just to back up for a second, what do you think Majid is doing or attempting to do in reforming Islam? You you give him absolutely no credit for his efforts here. He's precisely engaged in this kind of theological effort to contextualize, to rebut, to find some way forward theologically for even the most devout Muslims. Do you think uh, that's new, Sam? It's not new, but it is rare. And the proof of its novelty to you should be just how reliably someone like Majid is disparaged by his fellow Muslims. And it's not only Majid, it's anyone else who, who's doing similar work gets disparaged as an apostate as a sellout, as an Uncle Tom, as a porch monkey. Well, it, I never use those words again. You're, well, no, you're, but, you're no, but you're oh, no, but you're totally disparaging him and his whole project, and yet you are essentially articulating the same project. that You're saying this should be done, and I can show you how Majid is attempting to do just that, and yet you're saying Majid has no credibility, he's an opportunist, this is completely uh, defamatory of the tradition. And our collaboration together is just the height of arrogance and selfishness and intellectual waywardness. And yet yeah, the so stuff the he reason, spells out in the book is very much sure. along the lines of what you just described. Yeah, sure. So, so um, perceptions are very important. And I think here again, you yeah, yes, perceptions are very important if you're going to follow a leader. This is true. But uh, what you what we have here is, again, that clash between 
who has the quote-unquote real Islam? I mean, who actually has the authority to interpret the whole book and the hadiths and the the biography of Muhammad and and extol or hand down the interpretation? Who has it right? And the fact that there are differing opinions is a sort of frighteningly obvious, uh, you know, example that this is all man-made interpretations. Like, if it's not, you know, written in reality itself and is interpreted the same way by everybody, then why do we bother to pretend that it's somehow uh, divine? God, it doesn't make any sense. It's like it's like people arguing about whether Lord of the Rings is real or not, and then going to war with each other over it, and then differ, having differing opinions about what what interpretation of the Lord of the Rings is accurate. I mean, it's somewhat reductionist, but that's basically what's going on here. And historically, left wingers and progressives and reformists who were either bankrolled by or associated with right-wingers or what we would today call neoconservatives have ha- have basically been been co-opted and it creates a perception okay. uh, of, well, of, of so for that. example if Martin Luther King was supported by the John Birch Society would his values and his views <clears throat> and his work still contain the same merit maybe but it would he would lose a lot of support within the African American community i guarantee you that okay well that, that, so, those charges those charges that you've made in this article about Majid and and Quilliam insofar as I understand them, are false. And so let's just get to those. Let's just get back to the text and and keep plodding along. Okay, and just I want to – can I make one point quickly about reform not being new? In 2004, the king of Jordan held a giant conference in in Amman and invited all of the major Sunni scholars to give a fatwa. And they had a major conference there, Shia scholars, Sunni scholars, people who are very widely followed. You have huge platforms in the Middle East, and they gave a fatwa together saying that no ordinary Muslim could pronounce takfir on another. It was a message of peace known as the Amman message, and I, look, and I request that your followers look it up. Okay, so once again, I did look it up. And at least, I mean, the, the summary from the Wikipedia page seems to, d- seems to indicate that it's, it's more about creating order in the Islamic world is what it seems to be and it actually it, it it does forbid pronouncing or declaiming proclaiming takfir on another muslim uh, and seems to have been aimed as well at um at trying to make religious edicts official rather than unofficial and illegitimate I, again I don't, i'm not sure exactly how that's supposed to happen i mean if if you're reading from the quran and what you're saying sounds legitimate to people they will follow you uh when you have this giant hierarchy this um, this organization of the islamic law and teaching and all these things then it becomes this authority problem again where who has the real islam and who's actually practicing it and can you dig up dirt on some other teacher and prove that they're not legitimate or that they've been co-opted you know i I mean I, i applaud them their attempts but the fact that you even have to issue an edict that says you can't have an Islamic witch hunt of, you know, real and and illegitimate Muslims, that's its own 
that's, that's a real sign right there, right? I mean, you're basically having a witch hunt amongst, you know, Muslims about who's a real Muslim and not. We've done this. We did the Salem witch trials. You know, we kind of learn from this process, and they need to learn this process as well. So this is not new. 126 scholars condemned ISIS's views on slavery just last year, 2014, point by point. Well, that's great. Again, good for them. Um, shouldn't it be all Islamic scholars uh, decrying slavery? I mean, shouldn't they all be denouncing it? Not just, you know, 126? Right. Amina Wadud, in 2005, led the first publicly mixed-gender prayer. You know, Leila Bakhtiar produced the first feminist interpretation of the Quran. This is an ongoing process, well, Sam. Yeah. And so when you, when you enter the debate and Majid claims or at least has this aura about him as him being the first reformer, it alienates a lot of people on the ground. And you speak to those people and you, you know what the first thing you're going to hear is? That he doesn't have standing in the legal sense and in the political and moral sense in those communities. Well, let's get to that because you make that charge below. I just want – again, I want to keep moving through yeah, systematically. Yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. So, you're, so where, where were we? Uh, it is in the context – Sure. <clears throat> it is in the context of Project Islamic Reformation that the atheist neuroscientist Sam Harris and the redeemed radical Majid Nawaz have published their latest book, Islam and the Future of Tolerance, put out by no less a publishing house than Harvard University Press. The book is structured as a conversation between Harris and Nawaz, who go back and forth over issues ranging from polling data suggesting Muslims support corporal punishment to the Islamic justifications for jihad. Compressed into its 128 pages is the entire Reformation project, except that the book's contents are as thin as its subject is grand. For a work whose title includes the words Islam and Future of Tolerance, the Harris Nawaz pamphlet consistently veers from the ahistorical into the nonsensical and back again, almost always at Harris's urging. <clears throat> okay, well, well, this Let's is... Let's talk about it. Yeah, I mean, this is still a little more throat-clearing from you, but I, I want to respond to the charge that um, what I've said in the book is either historically inaccurate or nonsensical. Uh, now, our, our differing readings of history, I think, are going to be difficult to reconcile here, but uh, given how difficult everything has been thus far. But that, I think, doesn't actually matter much because, as I told Majid in the book, nothing in my account turns on the history. I mean, I, you know, in my view, we have to deal with the world as we find it. I mean, wh whatever the origins of uh, or the significance of something like the Crusades, for instance, that doesn't change the fact that we have to deal with groups like ISIS today and the attraction that their ideology holds for millions of Muslims. So, you know, wh whatever happened a thousand years ago has no bearing, in my view, on the ethical or political legitimacy of violent jihadism today. Again, he does, Sam Harris does not sound like he's deranged. It doesn't sound like he is not confident in what he's saying. And he's not saying things that are, just, that are vile. He's just saying, he's just laying things out. Well, and, the Quran was the same as it was a thousand years ago. And there was music and civilization and poetry and peace at that point, And there's terrorism well, today, which, turns, let, which means let, it's not let, textual, let me just political. finish this point, because whatever you think about that, the height of Muslim civilization doesn't change the fact that millions of Muslims today think that cartoonists and novelists should be killed for their, their impiety. Okay, so debating the history in my view, is a waste of time. And, and the only reason why I brought it up in the book or, or challenged Majid's reading of history is that I think many people, and I think yourself included, are 
accepting a far too rosy picture of Muslim history, which is kind of a mythology, really. And it's becoming more current in academia for reasons that, that are obviously political. I mean, that's my response Look, to the charge of being Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens praised the works of, uh, of the Islamic Golden Age and Bernard well, Lewis what, did as well, people okay, on the you, right. Yes. Well, I, I'm not saying there was no Golden Age and we can talk – You, you, you emphasize it. OK. I do de-emphasize it because I, one, I think it is exaggerated. But two, I think it's actually not relevant to dealing with the, the ideas as they're currently accepted. So just a little background, uh, the Islamic Golden Age uh, refers to a period in the history of Islam, traditionally from around the 8th century to the 13th century uh, AD, and there were various caliphates and that, that ruled the Islamic world, and they, they had a renaissance of sorts, uh, scientific and economic flourishing. Uh, there was a promotion of scientific uh, endeavors and exploration, that kind of thing. Now, this ended, uh, by some estimates, with the Mongol invasions and the sacking of Baghdad in, 19, or in 1258. Uh, there are... Interestingly enough, there are historians who think that there was also a shift which brought about the end of this golden age that didn't have directly to do with the Mongol invasions. And it was a practice known as a taklid, which means uh, imitation thinking. Uh, so instead of, uh, let's try this, ijtihad, uh, independent reasoning, uh, there was a, in the 12th century, there was a favor of shifting to uh, taklid, and this led to a rejection of uh, Greek philosophy as being anti-Islamic and more literal interpretations of the Quran. so they began to favor revelation instead of scientific endeavor. And this decline and this, this fall hasn't been, you know, there hasn't been, that's why they call it a golden age, right? There hasn't been a similar age or a similar era in Islamic history since. It is worth noting, though, that uh, during this golden age, there was a concerted effort to gather all of the knowledge of the world together and to translate it into Arabic. Now, this caused a preservation of various works that had other, that would otherwise have been lost. Uh, but it also bears knowing that although they did preserve uh, Aristotle and uh, various other works, uh, they also experienced the the economic growth aspect was also fueled in part by slavery. And there was extensive uh, slave trade and uh, across Africa. And basically anyone who wasn't Islamic, you could enslave. And, uh, you know, that was a boon to the economy and helped fuel this golden age. While at the same time, they were there were some anyway that were engaged in these higher-minded ideals. So I think it's important to keep those two in mind, both both sides of that golden age coin there. But well, I mean, you bring. Well, it's you, not exaggerated. The preservation of Aristotle, okay. the advancements let, in optics and mathematics and political economy, you, these you, are not exaggerations. Yes, you mentioned that below, and I, let's, let's just deal with it when they come up in your text. But I, I, I'm happy to talk about it, I, but I'm just telling you why 
I think it's it's not actually relevant to get into those details. But and I, as for free speech, I think I hope we can get into that the Danish cartoons of the Rushdie affair because to me again, you conflate theology with politics and political circumstances here. Okay. Those were those were politicized incidents that certain preachers use for their own self interest. In one case, Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran, and in the other case, an individual by the name of Ahmed Abu Laban, a supporter of, of Osama bin Laden. Okay. And so I hope we can get into the to the details be, because again, it's not reducible to the Quran or jihad or those evil backwards Muslims over there. Okay, so the man we call the Ayatollah Khomeini was an Iranian Shia religious leader, okay? He was the supreme leader of the Islamic Republic of Iran, okay? And he was considered to be an expert in Islamic law. And we're not talking about, it's not just, you know, five guys in a cave being angry at Salman Rushdie. I mean, the, the, this is a legitimate as legitimate as it gets as far as Islamic law is concerned. Uh, there's probably detractors, but this is part of what we're hashing out here, right? Is who's right and who's All wrong. Right. And Again, back to your text. There was this charge about being ahistorical, and there was this charge about being nonsensical. Now, you really think you can back up this charge that most of that what I say here is either ahistorical or nonsensical? Not Nonsensical, really? That's, that's the word you mean? Well, I think it, it flirts with and, and, and proceeds on the point of, of nonsense at times, um, both for its superficiality and its surface-level analysis, and second, for the fact that it completely excludes and excuses and takes no interest in the politics of the situation. You, know, you are someone who has rightly condemned and talked about ISIS and militarism you know, in, in a very honest way, I, sh- I should say, and yet you take no interest in the conditions that produced ISIS in Syria and how ISIS became a, a, a band of radicals that were decimated a few years ago to this this mega uh, terrorist organization. If there was one ISIS member on earth, we wouldn't be talking about ISIS. The fact that it exists and it has 25,000 people, Sam, has to do with politics. And your book did not address that at all. Okay, well, I, I don't think it has to do with politics. So so we just disagree there. And hopefully we could actually have a reasonable conversation on that. But but if we're going to have a it reasonable was conversation. in 2011. What was defeated Al-Qaeda, in Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda was on the run. And Al-Qaeda in Iraq, the predecessor organization to ISIS, was basically defeated, very okay. near to decimated. In 2011, when the Syrian civil war happens, it has territory and has ground. The secular president of Syria releases jihadists from prison. They flood the Syrian opposition. And the next thing you know, there's a caliphate. And he doesn't attack them. There are no attacks against ISIS when it's growing like a cancerous okay. virus. There are no attacks against them until the West intervenes. And those are the reasons why, instead of 10 people being in ISIS, there are 25,000 why they're on the front of our minds yes. right now. Okay, but what you have to explain, if you're going to ascribe the cause of ISIS to politics, you then have to explain why someone living in the UK with the benefit of a degree in computer science, a third generation British citizen, or someone who's in medical school, or someone who's, who's living in, in the United States and uh, the victim of nothing, who enjoys all the freedoms that you and I do, can wake up tomorrow morning and decide that what they really have to do with their lives is sacrifice their life to fight alongside the jihadis uh, in Syria and Iraq right now. Okay, so on this particular point, there's kind of a... its I don't want to say it's an obfuscation, but it's sort of a, a distraction maybe, or it's tangential, but there is more to somebody making a very poor life choice, like 
going to fight in a war zone when they grew up, you know, in Orange County, California or something, or Kansas or whatever. And it is a sort of, I mean, it's almost a Jack London-esque kind of thing. It's uh, young men looking for adventure. Now, if you already are Muslim or if you uh, romanticize Islam or you romanticize, I guess, fighting the Western, you know, war machine, whatever it is, you can then motivate yourself with that view, and it's not really purely religious. I mean, you may have, you may be culturally Islamic, you may have, you may know a little bit of the Quran or whatever, but you're talking about casually uh, casual Muslims, the same way there's casual Christians, right? They go to church and whatnot, but they don't really, they don't deeply believe in specific doctrines. So it's totally possible to have uh, maybe somebody who wants to convert to Islam because of various other reasons rather than the actual spirituality, uh, the, the afterlife rules and the, uh, the, the haram and the halal and all this other stuff, like uh, following all those rules, that's not really what they're into. What they're into is maybe the praying multiple times a day, maybe they're just into the uh, conflict aspect of it, that it's a departure from Western religion, you know, whatever. Uh, but there are other reasons why uh, someone decides to take up arms and go to a war zone. Uh, some of them maybe just are naive, some of them just want an adventure, some of them think that they are fighting, as maybe Omer indicates, in a political struggle, that they uh, want to change the narrative somehow. I don't know how going and fighting with them is necessarily the thing to do, but, you know, again, if in a lot of cases, if these are young men, they're not necessarily going to be thinking too Clearly, right? They're going to be thinking about uh, glory and adventure and uh, maybe women, whatever. And uh, so, yeah, basically, it can be, there can be other factors that motivate somebody to make a poor life choice, like uh, joining a giant death cult in the desert. Now, now, if you're, if you're going to call that political, if you're going to give some you know, tortured reading of their obviously religious motives and their, and their, their statements about paradise and their statements about uh, Islam and their resort to the scripture, and you're going to call that politics, right? Then words don't mean anything. But I'm, st- I'm still stuck on this word nonsensical because I think this word means nothing. You say that what I say in the book is nonsensical. I would be amazed if you can find a single statement in the book that's nonsensical. I mean, I, I will pay you $1,000 for every nonsensical statement you can find of mine in the book. I mean, go, you go, go ahead, bankrupt me. <laughs> that's a pretty that is a pretty bold uh statement to make that's a pretty bold claim you know just go right ahead i'll pay you to find nonsensical statements uh to me it just indicates obviously that he you know he stands behind what he's saying right yeah yeah well i don't have uh your book in front of me right now uh, I, listen i'll give you a year to do this okay yeah I mean, either you, you're going to use words that you actually mean or yeah. not, right? So yeah. now, now is politics going to be one of these words that's like nonsensical? Well, look, look, Sam, unlike you, I don't um, I don't cry being quoted out of context every single time there, there, there's a word that you can dispute. It's, now, not, it's, nonsense, not, it's not a... Okay, to me, an analysis that excludes politics is nonsense. Like, it's not, it's not worthy of a serious debate because politics, especially in this time, is everything. And I would agree that, that it plays an important role, of course. There's more to some of these activities and everything, but... How do you separate religion from theocracy? Oh, yeah, you can't. It, right, okay, it okay. matters exceptionally. Okay, let, let, let's take those statements. Politics is everything. Any analysis of anything in human affairs that doesn't include politics is nonsense. Okay, Th- those are claims about how deep politics reaches that I think are 
quite obviously false. Now, we perhaps we could talk about that, but we, if we're going to talk about something like that, we have to use words that make sense, right? And we have to. And I mean, you're, you're just your attack on me just now about I don't cry every time someone quotes me out of context, right? The lack of charity and the lack of understanding of what I go through dealing with this issue is much of the problem I, we've been talking about thus far. I mean, I've been trying to just shine some light for you on what it's like to be a well-intentioned public person raising this issue, right, where every fucking word is parsed in the least charitable, most inflammatory way, and where when it is someone is obviously misrepresenting you, right, where their purpose is to misrepresent you, no one on the other side cares, right? So you, like the, the constituency you are talking to, the, the people who would read your Salon article and love it and say, oh, like, finally, there's a, a takedown, another takedown of, of Sam Harris and Majid, right? I mean, so it's like the people who, who forwarded it on Twitter because they loved it, you know, like the, like the Glenn Greenwalds of the world. No, he didn't. They, he didn't. I, I don't think he did. And I disagree about foreign policy a lot. You have a colleague, right? I don't know if you still consider him a colleague, but you've co-written an article with the person who I think is the worst actor in this space, Murtaza Hussein, right? So he so I write an article the entitled the the end of liberalism question mark and the purpose of the article is to worry about the rise of fascism and to worry about how the liberal blindness to the problem of islamism is empowering the fascists of Europe and and I wrote this in 2006 all right. Well, I've never actually read that piece by Sam Harris, but if you would uh, direct your attention to episode one of the Kyle Style podcast about the Syrian migrant crisis, which has ballooned, which then later caused episode 23, Cologne and the Rising Right, you'll see that Sam Harris is not alone, and I arrived at this view completely independent of anything he's written. It's a common concern. It's worrying. And there's a line in there, which in context is absolutely clear that I am worrying that that liberals are empowering fascists, right? And and but the line is, in certain situations, the the people who speak most sensibly about the problem of Islamism are fascists. Are fascists? Yeah. And do you still stand by that today? In any given context, that's absolutely possible. Now I'm not. Yeah, I mean, and, there are and, many liberals and leftists who speak. Well, yeah. Sensibly oh, yeah. More so, more and more so. We're talking about something yeah. I wrote ten years ago, but. This is a problem. I, the rise of the swing to the right, you know, which is now becoming even more obvious after the, the, the refugee crisis kicked off, and the swing to the right in our own country, where you have someone like Trump launching a credible bid for the presidency. As, I mean, that was something that would have been unimaginable, I think, four years ago. And that would be episode 28 of the Kyle Style podcast, Trump 2016 is your fault called that one as well. But uh, what he's really getting at here is what has been come to be known as the regressive left uh, amongst people who are into this crazy uh, argumentative sphere. And to, you know, talk over Sam Harris a little bit, I mean, look, if, le if progressives and leftists do not honestly address the problems with militant Islam that are now flooding into Europe that people want to bring to North America, people will react out of fear and paranoia and suspicion, and they will side with 
political candidates who address their concerns. And this will lead to people voting as basically single-issue voters for somebody like Trump, who will openly and honestly criticize Islam and jihadism and call it what it is and not obfuscate the connection between jihadi violence and Islam itself. Now, is it fair? No, it's not necessarily fair. But it is what is going to be effective, and it only works because of the left's constant smokescreening. That is, I, again, I would argue, the result of the failures of liberals on this issue. But to come back to the point I was actually making is that Murtaza Hussein, your co-author, right? I don't know if he's a uh, friend and, and of let, yours. Can you, can you tell your listeners what that article was where we were co-authors? It was an op-ed. Right? It was an op-ed in the New York Times. And what was it about? I forgot. It was about. It was called Qatar's showcase of shame, and it was about the immense human rights violations bordering upon slavery that migrant workers there are facing. So it's completely irrelevant <clears throat> to this right. okay. to, to this quotation. And I think what he was and look, I'm not Mortaza, and I don't think you guys are probably going to have a conversation about this. But I think what he was doing is expressing the kind of anger that many people have towards you for at least empowering or sympathizing with um, the far right. No, but, I, in, but, in no, your, but no, but I absolutely was not sympathizing I mean, with Hitchens the far right. I mean, Hitchens called it an irresponsible comment. No, what Hitchens said about it, and it's a very difficult thing to parse because it was in the context of writing a, a review of Mark Stein's book, but his comment about it was ambiguous in the context of what he was saying about Mark Stein. But I, Hitch and I never got a chance to talk about the, 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 fil- the Philip he delivered against me in that in that essay. And I consider that, a, you know, an instance of friendly fire. But in any case, I mean, Hitch and I were, as you, I think you know, totally in sync on this issue. And he was even more hawkish than I was on specific questions of U.S. Yeah. foreign policy, I, right? The, 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 the but, big but difference no, between the, you the, two no, is no, that in point, his words, he never dehumanized Muslims, at least okay, in my well, readings. I, well, well, no, but there are people who are misreading Hitch in the same way someone like Murtaza is misreading me to make him out to be a genocidal monster. There are people who are going around saying that Hitch once said in a talk that he would have celebrated the the annihilation of of the country of Iran, right? Or that he wanted to he wanted to just kill all Muslims outright, right? But when you actually look closely at what he was saying in in that latter case, he was talking about members of al-Qaeda in Iraq. He's he's saying we should be killing members of al-Qaeda in Iraq. And then someone like PZ Myers, you know, this biologist, mm-hmm. blogger, troll, says that he's talking about killing all Muslims. But this is the kind of thing that is happening to everyone who touches this issue. And your collaborator on that piece you just described, uh, Murtaza Hussein, is the worst offender on this point. He's the one who, and I was happy you pushed back against this in your article, he was the one who called Majid a porch monkey, right? But he, in this article, is claiming that I am a fascist who loves fascists, who is supporting fascists, who who would support the Golden Dawn Party, who wants to turn immigrants into lampshades, right? But when you actually read my article, clearly all I'm doing is worrying about the rise of fascism. And I actually say in the article that these people are almost as bad as the jihadists themselves. Okay. And I mean, I'll say it again. I already said it once, but okay. Sam Harris, in every interview I've seen him in, every debate, whatever, he always tends to go back towards things like human happiness and things like that. I don't understand how someone would assume that an atheist PhD neuroscientist who 
is is a known user of psychedelic drugs who I have never heard say anything about uh, anything that's fascist about uh, homosexuals or women or anything like that. Uh, the only time that he has been is so critical of something is when it is relating to violence like in Islam. And then he's called a right-wing fascist supporter. It just doesn't bear scrutiny. It doesn't hold up when you compare it to every other topic that he ever talks about. And I just, eh, just got to say that again. <laughs> he's got to say it again. Right. So there's there, there's no way to for for a charitable reading uh, or even a, a coherent one yeah. to, to I think I think Mortaza was was responding to a number of comments that no, you no. have made No no he, he were... was telling people that I'm a fascist and he's done it over and over again and and to to come back to Hitch's disagreement with me here what he thought, irresponsible yes yeah what was irresponsible is that line was so easily lifted out of context and used to slam me falsely and used as a as apparently to signal some kind of support for fascism yeah. that it was irresponsible to write something that could be so easily lifted out of context in that yeah, way. Yeah, and I also think it's it, – yeah, right. It's it was, outrageous it, to say something like that, no, to write no, a sentence it like was that. not outrageous in context, right? But it was irresponsible to not foresee how it would be used against me. OK, that, that really kind of irked me. Uh, how Omer said, yeah, it would be outrageous to say something like that. It, he, he, I don't know how he wouldn't know what Sam Harris is actually saying right there. He, he was already building up to the point, and somehow Omer managed to make it like, oh, yeah, you agree with me. No, he doesn't agree with you. It's And, and Hitchens and Sam Harris were allies. And I just have no doubt that Hitchens, of all people who had a, a long career of writing and publishing, wouldn't have said to Sam Harris the exact same thing that Sam said he said, which is that you got to be careful because people will take you out of context. So you have to word your, word your words correctly or they will be used against you. Or how it could be used to some alternate purpose. I think it was inaccurate too, though. Like the the it's entire not a, leftist, it, the not leftist a, opposition... For example, I'll give you, I'll give you an example of a writer who has cr- uh, criticized um, multiculturalism and from the position okay, of the left. You're, you're, named- you're changing the subject. I don't want to go down this path. The, the, the reason, only reason why I brought this up is because you, the line you just spoke a few minutes ago about I don't cry every time I'm taken out of context, right? I quote it out of context, right? You are denying – you're OK, but you're denying how malicious this is because it, with a certain level of malice, it is impossible to write anything and not have it used against you uncharitably, yeah. right? So um, my classic example here now, which I, I've used again and again but which makes the point is if I wrote somewhere that black people are apes, white people are apes, we're all apes, racism doesn't make any sense – Someone like Murtaza Hussein now, and he's done this. And every, this is what, nonsensical. What, no, what, there's no evidence what, that he would do that. Look, I know Murtaza. I don't know him well, but he's he, well intentioned. What he, he, what he did, honesty. what he did in this article on fascism was every bit as egregious as this. Well, before Omer kind of cut him off, uh, Sam Harris was going to finish that uh, analogy or that example. I've heard him use that example before. Um, uh, someone like Murtaza Hussein would say. Uh, Sam Harris says black people are apes, you know, classic taking something completely out of context or cherry picking. 
and if you have a f- if you have a following or you have a readership who are already kind of on board with the Sam Harris as a violent fascist, uh, Islamophobe, etc., then that is the kind of clickbait headline that will get readers. And it's it's it seems cheap, and it only works when you don't understand any of Sam Harris's other views or other work in any kind of context. There's a Muslim on Twitter who I don't know if he's published elsewhere. He's a lawyer on Twitter who has some tens of thousands of followers. I believe his um, handle is something like Muslim IQ, right? Uh, I think he's an, an Ahmadi Muslim. I think he's Ahmadi, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. He used this quote out of context, right? So I, at one point in one of my books, I believe it was Letter to a Christian Nation, I said that um, uh, rape is natural. You know, orangutans rape, dolphins rape, human beings have gone, going back centuries have raped. Uh, no one would ever argue on the basis of the fact that rape is natural among primates, that it is good or that it is worth defending or that it's not worth condemning or that rapists shouldn't be yeah. in prison. But I mean, right? look, you okay. have to be held accountable for your words. Like, I would never write wait, that sentence wait, wait, that wait, 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 Natural has okay. a certain meaning. Bullshit. Cert- Bullshit. I would you say are rape go- is evolutionarily ingrained. <laughs> yeah, no, you wouldn't, Omer. Uh, the the thing here is, yeah, yes, uh, there is another way to word that, as as Omer pointed out. But if you're going to be that pedantic and not glean any context it from, never mind, never mind the the specific sentence, which you would think was going to have some kind of rationalization for a statement like "rape is natural." There's there you are then implying maybe that it's good. Well, read the next fucking sentence then. Like if if somebody was actually writing a rape apologist, uh, you know, work, there was like no way that that would have escaped scathing criticism. And to imply that due to evolutionary biology or evolutionary psychology that rape is somehow justifiable, well, that negates the very – negates our legal system. It negates basic aspects of other human rights. So there's no way that, as I pointed out before, that Sam Harris somehow supports rape. What you have here is, he's pointing out – it completely, I guess, uncharitable. He uses that term, uncharitable. I think it's it's a bullshit reading. Like he said, you're you're reading into it and taking it out of context specifically to slander somebody, as opposed to taking it in context and reading it uh, in an intelligent fashion and in an honest way, and actually understanding and interpreting what the what the actual statement and what the intent is, according to how we have. Evolved as a I was, species. I was talking about the naturalistic fallacy. It's called the naturalistic fallacy for a reason. The idea that everything that is natural is somehow good is obviously wrong. And I was proving that it was wrong by reminding people that rape, among other things that we're, we're desperate to get rid of, like tribal violence, is perfectly natural. And if someone can go back and take the sentence out of context and then pretend that you are using it in defense of rape, right? 
And if, you, if, you're, if you're going to say that is a justifiable thing to do intellectually, you're no one worth talking to. I mean, your, your intellectual I, like, I hear, career you're, you're, is over. You're quoting other people's words and you're asking me what I think of them. I didn't launch that allegation against you. I didn't. You just declared some sympathy for no, it no, no, just no, 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 now. No, I said I would have phrased it differently. I, oh. I would have phrased your, your viewpoint, but which you, I agree with. You put the onus on me for phrasing it that way, where in context, it was absolutely clear. Right. Yeah, if, if you're yeah, okay. you are going to denude our discourse of everything valuable if you play by these rules. Okay, no, this, I mean, look, I don't know how we got off on, on, on this. No, because we got off on the tangent because you said I don't whine or cry when someone quotes me out of context. Sam, you have to – okay, okay. And I'm Would trying to agree? point out to yeah, you how okay. sinister this has okay. become. And you have this, a this colleague. Going on now for you have a while a, and you, I want to respond to you. On, you're not the, responding. You're changing the subject. No, I want to respond to exa- – look, listen, you talk about radicalization. You can give me a chance to respond. Now you've talked about all these other people who I have nothing to do with except for more – Except I, for the worst offender who you I, just, who you just we, defended in the – Context of my raising the issue as blameless and rational and complete. In his, <laughs> Listen, and, you have said you, things you, you, you that just, many people would find not only offensive, but yes, bigoted, and that are inaccurate. For example, things like some pro- propositions, and uh, you uh, you can finish the if quote. If you are if you are not going to play by the rules of understanding what someone is actually communicating in context, then you can say anything about anyone. You can make anyone look like a bigot. Yeah, right. it's kind of like reading a, a holy text. You no, know, you it's not. It with your own agenda. It's not like reading a holy text. It's very much like re- reading a holy text. No, Look, this Omer, this is a totally false move. The gripe I have with the holy books, right, is that a plausible reading, a consistent reading, a taking of it in, it, in its totality, not an obviously dishonest reading, gets you something extreme and hostile to tolerance, and hostile to pluralism. That is the problem. I'm not saying that you can cherry that's, pick. That's factually inaccurate. Okay, let's put that to the test. So, Exodus twenty two eighteen of the King James Version of the Bible. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. There's a famous one, nice and simple, to the point. So if you think, you believe, you have quote-unquote proven that somebody is a witch, they have to be killed, right? I don't know if there's any other way to really read that, if they're a witch and they oppose the king. No, it just says a witch. For you. Okay, but then it's a total Muslim. mystery why the Muslim world is the way it is, right? It's a you total don't want to mi- talk about politics. You said you don't want to talk. You don't want to talk about the Syrian civil war. You don't want to talk about Saudi power. You don't want to talk about Iran. These are all factors that empowered uh, that empowered an ideology, Sam, a political ideology that did not exist before. Specific doctrine marshaled by a specific organization. Specific organizations. Okay, uh, it's purely a modern creation seems strange because there's about 1,500 years of violent Islamic expansionism. I mean, they they spread across and conquered all the way to France and Spain, Eastern Europe. Like, it's just crazy. This they're not. It, it was never a peaceful religion. That you you don't want to engage in all these other factors. It's just not as, true. If, well, as if we can isolate first of all, isolate it's not theology true. in a lab. Well, we can isolate it. If I, I've just showed you how we could isolate it, if someone can wake up tomorrow and decide to look into Islam, right? That someone who lives in Marin, like John Walker Lind, or someone mm-hmm. who lives in Orange County, like Adam Gadon, who joined yeah. Al Qaeda, yeah. right? Someone can decide. Listen, I come from a culture that just wants me to drink more Starbucks and watch more music videos. And I just, I, you know, I, I'm, no one's oppressing me, I, but I just, I want to get into this Islam business. Let's see what's here. And he can get led down the path to extremism. Led down the path. You're right. By whom? 
by the fucking text. Yeah, or by the fucking terrorists, too. And the radicals, if you look at the statistics, for example, that come out of France, 80% of the jihadists come from non-religious families, for example. A majority of them go to join that, ISIS that, with that, their friends. That, with that their is friends. a totally misleading statement. To, to, to come out of a non-religious family means nothing. That does not exonerate religion. Every, there are people who find religion in their teens, in their 20s, right? It doesn't tend to happen in your 80s, but oh. there are people who find religion in the context of a non-religious upbringing that doesn't make their commitment or belief in the theology any See, less religious. They, okay, and I would add, I mean, Omer does sort of have a point that you have to have, you have to kind of like meet somebody who's like, yeah, let's, you know, fucking go join ISIS in the desert and kill people for, you know, Allah or whatever. But where Sam Harris has a point, too, though, is that the texts themselves back up this project, this endeavor that they have engaged in. Like, they, you, you don't get all of this ideology and all of this, uh, this fervor built up from it not relating whatsoever to the texts. Because then all you have is somebody saying, hey, uh, let's just go kill people. It's, that would be purely psychopathic, and most people, I would think, would turn away from that. Um, they're not even necessarily talking about gaining wealth or, or uh, you know, gaining women necessarily. It seems as though the recruitment videos are glorifying the connection to Allah, okay? This is from the texts, although spoken to people by other people. <laughs> They, they find religion, that's right. They're born again into it and added to it is this sense of excitement and joy for recreating and creating for the first time a utopian project that gives their lives a lot of meaning, right? It's not as if, look, if, if these people wanted to go and study Islam and understand it and get the Quran, the, the textual nuances of it, they'd go and enroll in a fucking PhD program, dude. Okay, so where was the PhD program in the early days of the religion? I mean, Muhammad didn't have a degree. He just was allegedly the receiver of the revelation. Uh, this doesn't make any sense. The PhD thing is a new development, uh, European, by, for that matter. And what does it, again, what does it matter if the, if the text can be interpreted, right, on its own merits, then why do you need a PhD in it, right? If it's supposedly so clear and it's a revelation from God, then why is it a PhD level complicated? And then what you're doing when you do that, if you grant that, you're concentrating the power in the hands of these literati who then, according to Omer himself, they will then wield political influence because they are the interpreters of the, the word. This is the same thing that happened in Europe with Christianity before the, print, the printing press and the, well, I mean, the Lutheran uh, schism, uh, the Reformation. This is seems obvious. <laughs> it just seems obvious. Okay, it's well, not it's like al-Baghdadi. Al-Baghdadi's got a PhD in Islamic studies. Are you, are you telling me that yeah. he doesn't have enough understanding of Islam? Is that really no, what's I, I the think, deficit I, there? No, I think that his his understanding is is maligned. And I'm not sure how credible Baghdad University or wherever he went and studied this actually is. Okay, let's assume that Baghdad University or wherever al-Baghdadi got his PhD in is uh, 
is the Muslim Middle Eastern equivalent of Liberty University here in America. It's a diploma mill that totally serves to try to uh, legitimize uh, Christian studies and and put professionals out there who are indoctrinated with Christian ideology. Let's assume that al-Baghdadi comes from the Middle Eastern version of that. Well, he's not coming across people daily. He didn't get to where he is now as a leader of ISIS of 20,000-some people without, I mean, he, he hasn't been challenged. You know, he, he wasn't challenged by anybody else who knew more or perceived him to not know, right? The, his interpretation and his teachings were plausible enough to help solidify his position as leader. Sure, he probably rules by or reached his position through violence, but he's cloaked in the holies of the Quran. So people are also buying that part of it, and that's his main motivation. But I will tell you this, knowing people who have studied this for their entire lifetime and people like Shahab Ahmed who put out very scholarly um, studies of this and would basically disagree with you on everything, it's not easy to understand. Right? It's not easy to understand Sharia, for example, which is 1,400 years of precedent and law. Right? It's not easy to understand the, the, the original classical Arabic in the Quran in, in the language that it is written and to understand the debates around it. Right, because Allah is just fucking with us and wanted us to all like be confused and have sectarian violence between each other about whether or not uh, who the successor to Muhammad was and... Yeah, yeah, of course. It makes perfect sense that, like, the word of God revealed by an angel would somehow be unclear. God, I can't believe people even put stock in this shit. Right? Well, the the I, same way that it's very difficult to understand the, the Constitution, man. You, the, the Tea Party are thumping the Constitution in their hand might think that they understand what the Constitution says, and even lawyers who are running for president don't understand what it says, but it's a very complicated document, and there are many uh, v- uh, varying interpretations and views on it that require a certain level, a certain level of intellectual s- sophistication. Now, wait a second. Is Omer implying some kind of classist uh, struggle here? That the, these lower classes that they can't uh, they can't understand these things. I mean, uh, they they're incapable of reading the text. Oh, because there's all these extra laws and all these other uh, court Supreme Court rulings on the Constitution that somehow uh, that somehow complicates the phrasing. I mean, th- this is. <laughs> I mean, this is all part of the whole problem with Islam, right? Is that everybody's kind of picking and choosing. However, with the Constitution, we have rule of government, we have rule of law, we have a system in place, we have you know laws of succession, etc., etc. We all continue to adhere to a general system of laws and rules. Those laws and rules are not divine. I mean, they slightly invoke the creator in some of the founding documents, but it's a matter of social cohesion, it's a matter of individual rights, it's a matter of human rights for us to all continue to operate within a sphere which is an umbrella which is created by the Constitution. And there's not a supernatural... Uh, cosmic scale of conflict between Republicans and Democrats. It's all policy, and it's all specifics about 
enacting law. Not the same thing as believing that the the successor to the uh, holy man is worthy of blowing up a suicide bomb over. And institutional recognition of the work. So, yes, I mean, I would say that if they actually wanted to understand the Quran and, and the text that they would well, take. This is just the point. The, the, the problem is that there are multiple understandings. Now, this is a, a good thing. It's possible to understand Islam and its texts in a way that is not the Wahhabi way. The fact that that's possible is the only ray of daylight we have here. And the fa- and, and that possibility is something that Majid Nawaz, right, my collaborator, is trying to push as many people in the direction of it, as am I, and as are you, ostensibly. But so th- there is... Not this, ostensibly, th- th- actually. Okay, but there's... I don't th- claim to be a reformer. There, there's a sort of irony here, which is that uh, Omer Aziz might not want to openly claim himself to be a, a reformer. He might not uh, think that he is going to enact change, but a raised Muslim, uh, sort of culturally identifies as Muslim, Western-educated person who is openly discussing these topics, this is what reform looks like. If we could translate this to places other than, uh, I guess, Canada and America, translate it to the Middle East, where people begin actually having discussions and dialogue, that is what moves everything forward. Like, like they're doing it right now. Like, Omer Aziz isn't a reformer, whether he, you know, is intending to be or not. There's this diversity of opinion, but what you seem to be denying is that there is a plausible reading of these texts. I mean, basically you're saying that everyone is, who's a Salafi or a Wahhabi or a Diobandi or some other intolerant strand of Islam, everyone who's an Islamist is insufficiently educated on the topic of Islam. They don't read the books enough, right? That is demonstrably untrue. Yeah, I think that, they'll, they, they, that they spin, for example, the doctrine of jihad and takfir according to their own, according to their own politics. Well, okay, the invoking of politics aside, there, there's another element here, which I, even Sam Harris didn't seem to notice. He's, he's saying that they are devout and they are informed about the Quranic passages that promote violence, etc., etc. Uh, I don't know if I even care. Like, I don't know if I even care how devout they are, right? Like, they, they have, a, they present themselves as, say, Islamic State or as a jihadist, or, you know, they present themselves this way. This is like a zombie who's been, they've been bit, okay? Like, I, I don't necessarily care whether they have Quranic backing for what they're doing. It's like completely beside the point, ultimately. Uh, they, they, have practiced violence. I just just was a little bit ago watching a, a new beheading video that put out by ISIS. Of course, people claim that it was the CIA actually doing it and all this other stuff, but I'm of the mindset that it actually is an ISIS-produced video because it's not that hard to get a good video if you know what you're doing. So anyway, uh, they whether they are devout, whether their Islam is, you know, no true Scotsman again, whether their Islam is legitimate, I don't really care at all. It's that they have that specific uh, form of Islam that is misguiding them and to them 
aiding not completely maybe but in each in each one but they it is aiding them in rationalizing the committing the committing of atrocious violence and it's happening as Sam Harris pointed out it's happening all over the world it's happening in countries that the U.S. isn't bombing. You can't blame U.S. foreign policy for things that are going on in Indonesia when we don't have drone strikes going on there. Ugh, like, their devoutness is irrelevant, and their level of, of education and of, of informedness about specifics of Islamic law and history are just completely beside the point. They think they are devout. I'm willing to take them at their word. Okay, but, you know, but but on your account, everyone does that. Any liberal Muslim is going to do the same thing. He's going to spin it in the direction of his politics or more likely ignore it all in the direction of his politics, which is a good thing. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and I hope that the liberal will actually understand the history, which unlike you, I think is very important because this terrorism wasn't happening before. Um, but on the second point, look, you keep saying this and it's really annoying that the tax, the Salafis and the Wahhabis and ISIS have a plausible reading of the text. Well, most Muslims, 98% around there, around that number, condemn ISIS and don't consider them legitimate Muslims. Again, that's, that, that's a, I don't know what poll you're pulling that from, but let's, let me just accept that. 98%. No, 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 no. Okay, this could skew the numbers uh, depending on the sample size, of course, but just a quick search found that uh, there's a uh, Pew Research Center, you know, Pew Poll, says that in Pakistan, a nuclear weapons state, obviously, only 28% of the public view ISIS unfavorably, right? So what? So 72% view them favorably? I think that probably already shoots his 98% uh, figure that he threw out to, to fucking holes. It, it just is... It's crazy. Like, if you're just going to throw out numbers like you you gotta have to you have to back them up i mean honestly because there's no way that they've continued to reach the the dis the spread and the distance that they have without public support okay like san bernardino shooters you know isis sympathizers at least or at least jihadist sympathizers this is not a fringe thing Okay, here, I have it in front of me. Okay, no, but... 100%. No, 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 I'm going to... I'll accept it. First of all, it's not true. There there, there are polls in places like Saudi Arabia that that show shocking support for ISIS, okay? Yeah, and and that should not be a surprise because Saudi Arabia was the first state that had the exact same ideology, an ally of ours that expanded and proselytized this around the world. But there are even Salafis who who reject ISIS, okay? Because they... Yeah, they're the quietest. Yeah, 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 and there are people who want a caliphate. They just don't think Baghdadi's got the right caliphate, right? Or he's not not the right caliphate. Historically, Sam, the traditionalists and later the Salafists were politically quietists. They did not want to engage in politics because they saw it as corrupting. So ISIS's sort of agenda here is completely ahistorical and novel in that sense. And that's the reason why history is important, especially if you're a Muslim person. Okay, so I'm assuming that Omer is proceeding with his uh, this is political Islam is what ISIS is and that that's not legitimate. No true Scotsman again. But what what does politics mean if you intend conquest okay like if you're going to conquer america by force is that politics 
or you're you're ignoring politics is literally what you're doing. You're not engaging with the political system. You're engaging with dominance and warfare. So if ISIS is political, quote unquote, then what the hell is what 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 are we doing when we engage with actual political process? Right? Is, is that ultra politics? I mean, they don't seek to engage individual nations in political discourse and try to unify they're trying to conquer it's like it's like the 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 it's the political hack has always been that way you can't win in politics you revert to dominance and warfare like i don't i don't understand how it's just all politics and not aggression I mean, it's aggressive, militaristic people. <sighs> because if you ask, listen, I guarantee you this, and coming from this community, I'm certain of it. I only began to understand and appreciate the complexity and richness of Islamic history, the part that you want to de-emphasize that Bernard Lewis does not. I only began to understand and appreciate that and even become aware of it by the time I got to university. And I'm, I'm more educated than most Muslim people. I can only imagine... Okay, so uh, let's, let's so taking that in some sense what he's saying is probably true. I mean, as a Western educated, I mean, he's educated at Yale, Omeris. He's probably correct, but in that sense, he's also more educated than most people in the world generally. Never mind the Muslims or Middle Eastern people or Arabic peoples, whatever. But that's still kind of arrogant, because what he's just basically said was that, you know, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, leader of ISIS, knows less about things than he does, or any other uh, Islamic leader knows less than he does, so then that would obviously, uh, by the no-true-Scotsman fallacy, make them... (laughs) like, less informed than he is somehow, but even though he's secular, he's going to set about trying to critique what is real Islam. I, like, wow. I mean, and he has the uh, the the gall to criticize Majid Nawaz, who is still a practicing Muslim. Wow. That's fascinating. But, in regards to the uh, Sam Harris disregards the history aspect... I mean, okay, look, like, I grew up in Idaho and Montana, okay? I'm very, very white, and yet I can find aspects of Chinese history to be very compelling, fascinating, and informative. I love Sun Tzu. I love, let's go to Japan. I love Miyamoto Musashi. I love the Book of Five Rings. I think that these works are fascinating. I think that aspects of their history are fascinating. Their culture are fascinating. I don't have to pretend to become Chinese or Japanese in order to appreciate these things. And what's even better, they're not asking me to. There's no threat and intimidation of me becoming Japanese. There is, however, this finger-pointing 
that Omer is doing right now in the Islamic world via the, again, no true Scotsman sort of situation. Just, that's not real Islam. That's not real Islam. You have it wrong. You have it wrong. And we are adults in the modern world playing this game of who's really interpreting what an angel said to Muhammad 1,500 years ago. It's seriously what people are talking about. They go into foreign policy, U.S. foreign policy, NATO, all this other stuff, uh, economics, and all these other things. This is what they're talking about. They're talking about what the the Sunni-Shia split. They're talking about who has the real revelation from from Allah, from God, from Yahweh, whatever you want to call, whatever you want to call it, whatever name you want to call it. And they're just missing the point is that there are people like me who just don't care. I don't care. You don't know what you're talking about. You have no proof for what you're talking about. And no one gives a shit except that you intimidate people and commit violence and force them to give a shit. (sighs) God, I'm sighing a lot in this one. If I had a conversation, in fact, I don't have to imagine it. I've had this conversation. They don't know about it. For them, Islam is born born um, the day they were, for all they care. It's what they see on television. So it's very important. The history is very important for this reason. And going back to the polls, yes, 100% in Lebanon, 94% in Jordan, 84% in, in the Palestinian territories who are being occupied, and they, yet they still condemn ISIS. And okay, so, yeah, but, okay, so, so even Hamas okay, so, so on the point condemns of ISIS, right? So, yeah, on the point, yeah, so, because so, these so, groups so, are not the same. Yeah, they're not the same, but in in many respects, they're the same with respect to their belief about Jews and women and jihad, and they just they're just not aligned politically, and and they're not precisely aligned the- theologically, but they're close enough to be part of the same problem I have with Islamism, right? So theologically, I mean, they're actually farther apart than you think. Well, I they're mean, not. Has, they're has, not has, you imagine I'm actually uninformed on this topic. I'm not. But I'm just saying that these are distinctions <clears throat> without a difference for my purposes. Yeah. Yes, ISIS I mean, is example, the worst. Hamas has, offered, Hamas has offered Israel a truce in, in, in the past. Um, they've worked with Israel on, on security. They're still a terrorist organization. Not that you've asked me to say that, but I think that okay, they are. And ISIS would never do that. Okay, yes, Al-Qaeda would never do and, that. And, and also, it's very likely that Hamas would do it based on theological reasons in a way and that... they it, don't. No, no. There, you can also offer a truce in a totally cynical and predatory way where it's just you're just basically rearming during that truce. As you know, there's a theological basis for that. Okay, so I had to try to confirm that one, uh, that there is a religious doctrine for uh, uh, truces and maybe uh, being backhanded during your or dishonest during your truces. And the only thing I was able to find is that it might relate to uh, what is known as takia. And takia is sort of like, um, I want to call it uh, permissible deception. You basically... Because your goals uh, are serving, I guess, the will of Allah, or they are serving your needs as a Muslim, you can be deceptive. And in some cases, the the way I first learned of taqiyya is that it's okay for a Muslim to not to say they aren't a Muslim if it serves their purposes of, say, safety or something like that, which you could kind of understand. What it is is they won't be punished by Allah. They're not a blasphemer or an apostate if they say they aren't a Muslim for their own safety or in the advancing of the cause of Islam. 
So I think that maybe, based just a quick uh, glance at the interwebs here, is that Takia might also cover that. And I was reading something a little bit there that said that uh, they can... Uh, make truces, but truces should only, in war, they can make truces, but the truces should only last, like, ten years at most, and they can rescind the truce at any time if it serves their purposes again, so uh, this was all kind of nested in a description of Takia, so yeah, it's okay to call a truce, rearm during a truce, and then maybe rescind a truce at any time under this doctrine of uh, Takia. Hamas also stopped suicide bombing for theological and political reasons, and now they actually need to rein in Islamic Jihad and other farther right-wing groups within the Palestinian territories who want to suicide bomb. Okay, well, we're near the two-hour mark, so let's just try to cover a little more of your text. I want to talk about these these issues of radicalization and political Islam. Okay, it's going to come up. All right, uh, I'm going to give your ears and uh, my attention and voice a break. We're not going to be getting into that in this episode. We're going to cut it here and uh, leave it for uh, the next episode. This may <laughs> may have created a monster with this thing. We might have uh, gone overly long, but uh, I'm I'm still engaged. I'm still in I'm still in the pocket. All right. I hope you are too. So uh, Kyle Style Podcast, uh, GoFundMe, Twitter, Facebook, uh, share me around, and see you again for the uh, next episode coming soon. Thanks.